What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Hello, everybody, once again, and welcome to the HR Impact Show. My name is CT, and I'm your host for today. Today, we're going to be talking about Miriam Webster's Word of the Year in 2023. And be talking about that word authentic. And particularly, how do you be authentic yet adaptable to be able to lead cross cultural teams? So, with us in the studio today to talk about this topic is Chad Thompson. Chad is the Chief People Officer at Lanza Tech. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hey, thanks, GCT. So, Chad, for those of us who may not know, could you walk us through what Lanza Tech does and what you do uh, at the company? See, Lanza Tech, we recently went public and we are responsible for taking waste and turning it into alternative products that help to reduce the footprint of carbon in the atmosphere. Our, we essentially worked with refineries, steel mills, municipal solid waste. We've developed a proprietary fermentation process that converts that waste into gases and then turns those gases into our alternative products. We are able to produce fibers and chemicals that are used in the production of our clothing as well as isopropyl alcohols, which are used in things like chemicals such as perfumes. And we have a wide application base for our technology. We operate around the world, primarily in Europe, Asia, and, and we are hoping to transform the carbon economy with an alternative method of reusing carbon and converting it into something that reduces pollution and keeps our planet safe. What would you say your key role is as the chief people officer in this very multinational I think a chief people officer in any company has, in my estimation, has about three to four primary roles. Number one, we have to attract and retain talent to help the company grow because the technology is there, but people always are enable the technology. Secondly, we have to create and nurture and steward the culture of the company that allows us to perform and optimize in terms of performance of our employees. We have a, a role to assist the leaders being strategic and helping to envision the future, how we grow intelligently, where we grow. And then lastly, obviously we have to get the basics right of HR, how we pay people, our policies, our procedures, and our processes that ensure that the company performs well. And I would say if there's a fifth dimension, it's to anticipate the, a rapidly changing environment and making sure that we can be adaptive. For example, COVID, some of these recent things really requires companies to pivot quickly and to figure out in, in the space of a lot of uncertainty, what's the path forward or to best adapt. 
to a rapidly changing environment. The last point is really important one. And, and across all of these five different dimensions, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Which of these do you feel like you've done the best job in? I, I think for me, the thing I probably reflect on this, and I'm not thinking just in the context of Lanzatech, but I've worked internationally, previously worked at Chevron for almost 24 years. It's really around developing people and building leadership and creating resilience within the workforce. And I think of different projects that have led that have required, you know, us to, to make tough decisions, but ultimately set the company up for success, even if it was something as challenging as a divestment or an acquisition. As I think about my career, what I really take away always is have I made the environment better than I found it? And have we developed people as a result of my leadership? And that's what I take a lot of credit for. In my mind, there's different types of leaders. There's what I call the extractive leader who takes all the capacity from the team and leverages it, obviously, for the benefits of the company. We also need to be balanced within a leader who is more of an invested in kind of leader where not only are you taking, but you are including skills and content to ensure that people are better as a result of interacting with you. And I've tried to pride myself on being the latter versus the former because in the latter case, people are more apt to give you discretionary effort because they see a reciprocation from you as a leader. I, I like that distinction. In your experience, actually, have you seen it possible to turn an extractive leader into one who's more willing to invest in their people? I have seen that. And the challenge is how to have those kind of conversations with those leaders to help them. And I, I'll give you an example. I think COVID actually was very helpful in, in that regard. Many leaders had a, a outdated archaic philosophy that people were only productive in the context of the slow walls of the office. And initially everyone was demanding people needed to come back to work. When are we going to get people back to work? I think over the course of the year or two that people were out and companies started to evaluate productivity, they realized that people were actually given significant more discretionary effort. I think the second thing is using engagement surveys and others helps leaders just identify what the team needs and creates a safe space for employees to speak up and to ensure that equation is well balanced. So I have seen it. It does require some strategic engagement and coaching, but I think leaders start to realize that if they're only extracting and not reinvesting in employees and developing them, that is a very short relationship. And now because of the amount of churn in the economy, employees are much more are focused on making decisions for themselves. And you're more likely to see turnover increase dramatically as people have a real clear sense of the kind of leader that they want to work for these days. And they're not going to stick around because they have a lot more options and that's creating a need for leaders to change. And obviously, I think HR and the people function plays an important role in supporting leaders through this sort of transformation for themselves. When you think about the next 
12 months. What is your personal moonshot goal for your function? For me, I want want us to be me- as measured objectively by industry standards to ensure that the service and the kind of quality that the HR team at LATEC is producing is demonstrably world-class. And I look at that in three dimensions. Are we executing against known standards? Secondly, are we innovating and creating an employee experience that's validated by the employees themselves, giving us data and our feedback? And thirdly, are we able to help support and lead the company through the change and the growth that we are experiencing? And so we've recently gone public and we're adapting to a, a new world as a public company and we will measure our success by being world-class in many of the areas that companies measure themselves on our ability to retain talent, our ability to execute on key priorities and definitely support the business in terms of growth and efficiency. So we're focused on technology and trying to enhance their We're looking into things like AI and trying to see, does it have any application that can add value to the way we support and engage with our employees? And then making sure that we also enhance our strategic partnership with our leaders, where we can be thought leaders, coaching them, and definitely more visible and present to help them as they try to tackle some of these problems that they're facing. Very cool. Uh, I I love how structured you are about thinking through the next 12 months and maybe on a slightly lighter note, is there a leadership or HR myth that you've encountered that you wish would just go away? If you ask a lot of HR leaders, they would comment on this. The misalignment between the need to take dramatic action or reducing workflow, which normally quickly becomes an issue of talent attraction. So companies go through these cycles of difficulty. They pivot quickly to reducing the workforce to what they think they can afford, and then very quickly find themselves in a net deficit on talent. And I wish we had a model that could better estimate the need and get that balance. The second myth that I really have come across that's very frustrating in my career is the, what I would call the discarding of talent. So again, we hire many companies, hire really smart people who can learn anything. And every time they're in trouble, they discard those employees to go to the market, to try to find new employees with new skills. I wish I could again solve the problem of how to transform employees with a a core competence of knowledge into new areas of opportunity and and how valuable it would be if we could do that. And so we go through this churn and employees, like could we retrain people and could we get more productivity from employees that are retrained versus the discard and trying to compete in the marketplace for, for new talent. So. That's what I I mentioned. And thirdly, that going to the right schools gives you great talent. And and when companies are struggling with diversity, a lot of it is because they have a model of diversity that it's, it is a little bit archaic. They still have their preferred schools that they believe give them better quality candidates. And I, I just think that's a big myth. I think talent is talent. 
But I think companies have to be more creative at finding talent versus being lazy and just going to particular schools because that's where they've always hunted. I really think that's a big myth and it, it actually limits companies from attracting diverse talent because in this global age we live, talent is, is plentiful. We just have to adapt our models. That's really good news for those of us who are adaptable though, surely, because that means that there are a lot of many pockets of high talent that are underpriced and hungry enough to work with us to in our mission. And we just need to be creative about how we go about finding them without giving out any secret sauce. Like what, what is, how does your approach to that? If you look at what companies traditionally do, they go to a particular space or place or lo locale to find talent. So the concept is I have to go and hunt the talent in a certain place. I think the big companies have created processes where talent finds them versus their finding talent. And so do I have an infrastructure that allows me to, first of all, publicize my company and get it widely known? Secondly, how do I show up in the marketplace for talent? And can I attract passive talent just because what people are, are hearing about my company? I really get a lot of pride when I hear employers or employees, potential employees say, I saw your company and I just want to work for you. I want to work for a company like this. And I think that's going to become the distinguishing factor in the future. It's can you create an, an employee value proposition whereby people just want to work for you because you have a good mission, you have great values, and then you have a culture that cares. And in our recent employee engagement survey, it was very hard to hear that that's what our employees think. They love our mission. Our mission is so strong that it, it has an attractive and a retentive capacity to it. We can't take it for granted. We do have to supplement it with world-class benefits and processes, but working for a company with a mission they can get behind the leaders that care and for a company that lives its values. That's what we're really focused on trying to in ensure that Lazatech becomes a great place to work. And, and most importantly, we can compete for talent. So on that front, when we think about competing for talent across non-traditional catchment areas that actually creates, by its very nature, a very diverse talent pool that is going to be cross-cultural, multi-dimensional, non-uniform backgrounds. And as a leader, how do you think leaders need to adapt to leading such teams? Because it's the traditional model of hiring has, if I'm from an Ivy League university, if I've gone to McKinsey, I'm just going to hire a bunch of people who look a lot like me. And that's just the nature of things. So if we're shaking things up, like what you're saying, then leaders are going to have to deal with people from vastly different backgrounds, from themselves, vastly different cultures. But what are the challenges that, that you think they're going to face? I think a couple of things. First of all, every company means well. They've developed a modality of how they manage talent that has the potential to cause it to be successful. But on the flip side of it, causes it to have some restrictive capacity in terms of servicing the best talent. 
I would say from my, my vantage point of being in corporate America, many companies, particularly Fortune 500, have great processes. Problem always is, though, is that talent identification is filtered through very narrow framework or lenses. And so what typically happens is there's a profile or a modality of what a leader looks like, and it typically follows the most conventional, successful kind of models. To your earlier point, like to the same school as a way of thinking that's aligned with what I have. I think the companies that are winning are starting to realize that as they become global, they have to look to leaders that have many different dimensions and you have to evaluate leaders, not only on the capacity for results, but also the other intangibles. For example, if you're looking for leaders that look just like you and think like you, then you're going to end up with a group of, of a team that doesn't really have the capacity to anticipate all the possible scenarios that you would run into. So I'm in Asia and I'm trying to figure out how to compete in Asia, but all my folks have a Western mindset. I'm not going to have the richness of understanding cues and codes and sensitivities and norms. But I might be judging that Asian leader who grew up in a cultural context of community versus individual, or grew up in a context of respect for elders and therefore how they show up in a meeting may be very different than American. You as the leader have to start to understand not only who is smart because they have verbal cues or skills, but also who might be very intelligent, but doesn't show up in a way that's typical. And that's where leadership is starting to be redefined. Let's not get overcome by external trappings, but let's also value very kind of cultural profiles that guarantee success. Because to me as a leader, helping leaders evaluate talent and build succession plans for the future, I've always tried to challenge those assumptions. Like, why are you comfortable with X or Y? Why do you need to see and know X versus seeing the results or of X versus Y? And how do you can debias your system as well? There is a second part of that, though, is that, again, certain cultural aspects are dominant in companies, and you also have to teach folks that are not comfortable with manifesting their leadership in those ways that they have to also adapt. It cannot be just the company adapting, that the employee has to also adapt to show up a little bit differently as well, if they're going to be successful. So it's a balanced approach to that really defining what leadership is, how to measure success, and then making sure that you are culturally open and sensitive to different leadership styles so that you're really picking the best folks for the job. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. That's a really good and nuanced approach because it, there's adaptation required on both sides. Because as the company and as leaders, you obviously 
need to flex depending on where in the world you're operating. And, and not just geographically. I think even within the United States, there are a lot of different microcultures that would exist within teams, different educational backgrounds, different career backgrounds, different even political ways of thinking. But at the same time, you're also saying that there's a responsibility on individuals where they too need to figure out the culture that they're entering and find a way to effectively operate within that culture. In principle, this makes a lot of sense. How do you think chief people officers and HR leaders need to operationalize this? My last company, Chevron, it, we had a really good leadership framework philosophy, and I, I have leveraged that philosophy in my new company to develop something that is consistent, that we can communicate to employees what is our expectation of leadership. And so I created a framework that we're working on at Lanzatech around leading and what do we expect? And so what do we expect of an individual? What do we expect of a supervisor? I think you have to have a very clear, defined set of expectations. For example, our leading requires you to leverage the team. Right. And what does leverage the team mean? It means draw on the strengths and the capabilities of the entire team. It means to create an environment where people can show up and, and they can contribute. Equip the team. Do, are they to have the skills? Do they have the capabilities? And do they have the cultural techniques to be able to succeed? So as a leader, you might know that you have someone on your team, they know what doing, but they're not showing up in the way that can convince others. And so that's your job as a leader to really equip them. That might be cultural training. Then there's aligning the team. Like how, how, how are we aligned around a set of core values, a set of principles, the way we work together, the way we resolve conflict, right? Everyone has a voice, making sure that those that are quiet are heard and, and encouraged into the conversation. And then ultimately delivering results. One of the things I learned as growing up in the Caribbean, being born in UK, but my parents are from the Caribbean, I had a way of seeing success that was more humble. When we were trained that you don't brag, you are humble, your results speak for yourself. In corporate America, that is true, but you have to have a level of confidence to compete when there are debates about which way to go. And if you sit quietly having a solution, but not contributing to the potentials for the best solution to be picked, you have to take accountability as well, because the, the opportunity of the soaring was created for your idea to compete, but your cultural challenges prevented you from doing that because you had conflict and dissonance between how I show up at work and who I am as an individual. And one of the things I use is the, the uh, Academy Award that big folks get, which is that kind of model. I said, every day you come to work, you put that on your desk and you realize that you are an actor because you can be a great salesman who has to be extroverted and deliver and convince people. But in your private life, you could be a very reserved person that loves peace and quiet. How we show up for work does not have to equally match who we are 
as, as individuals and creating comfort with that dissonance, the need to show up more with for effective results in the area of work, but show up in a different way in your personal life. And so when you help employees to understand that how I show up to do my job is different than how I show up to be who I am, and I can be those two persons without being a fraud, then people, the aha goes off. Yes, come into work and I'm bringing a different personality to be effective in this job, just like an actor does. Many people meet actors in real life and are shocked that they're not the characters that they saw in the movie or whatever, because they've done a good job of conveying meaning through this role, but they're not, they're, they're not becoming so new just to do the role. And we have to help our employees a lot with that. We have to help leaders draw out of people some of those skills, coach them how to show up in a meeting, give them feedback so that they can be successful. And that's the role of the leader is to help bring folks under you such that eventually your absence is not missed because you've built a team that can compete and can perform when you're not there. That's such an interesting way of looking at it. And as I reflect on my own career, I think you're absolutely right. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we are bringing a different self to work. And mo most of the time, right, for, for most people, I, I think there are a few people that I've seen that are pretty consistent between work and home, but that's not always true. The question is, how did you discover this for yourself? And then how do you go about helping other leaders discover this and hone the self that they bring to work and the self that they choose to show up with at work more deliberately and intentionally? I think there are three things I tend to look at is like who you are and how you think. You need to be true to that. And what that meant for me is I wasn't going to change some things. I'm not going to change the way I speak. I'm not going to change my accent. That's who I am. I'm not going to change my level of confidence in the way I think because the way I think is legitimately valid. But I do recognize that I am now competing with others for contributing to the team and that the best idea always wins. And so I've always had the confidence to say what I think, to say how I think. What I lacked early was I didn't understand the game and I called corporate America again, because like in every other game, there are ways, there's ways you win, there are ways you lose, and you need to understand the rules of the game that you're playing. If you play tennis rules and basketball, it wouldn't work. And in many instances, people have not even just at a basic level studied like how to be successful. What is our culture like? What is value? What isn't value? Talking outside of the meeting is not valued when you have an opportunity to say something within the meeting, right? Not showing up is not valued when people are looking for a solution. So you can't blame the leader because you didn't give the idea you sat quietly by. And so first is being authentic to who I am. Secondly, is understanding what role and how I need to show up to be successful. And thirdly, is seeking guidance and mentorship to help you unlock things that might be a little bit challenging. Is there someone in the meeting? 
that can look at how you showing up, can give you some feedback. Do you have a mentor that can help you in holding and creating what you were trying to convey? Being vulnerable enough to understand that you are, you have some opportunity to improve. I think lastly, for a leader, it's very important to have the context of humbling yourself to understand things that are not natural. So I, I, I give this example, when I lived in Indonesia, I went there, I had my own stereotypes and biases, and I realized very quickly, I needed to hang out with the locals because hanging out with the expats wouldn't teach me the nuances of the culture or Thailand. I, I learned that if I just said what I wanted to say, people would nod their head, but they may not even do it. And they because I needed to learn those cultural cues. I think that's where leaders who are managing globally need to pick up those cues and, and humble themselves and realize that you can appear to be successful in getting your way, but if you don't have the team fully bought in, you probably won't achieve that. So being true to who you are, understanding how things work and adapting your style to be successful, getting mentoring and help from people who are experienced in the organization. And then lastly, as a leader, humbling yourself and seeking out information from non-conventional sources to help you be better and more agile navigating across cultures. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that on one hand, we do need to be deliberate and conscious about how we're showing up at work. But on the other hand, we also need to be true to ourselves, to be authentic with what we're trying to, to, with what we're trying to do and who we're trying to be. How do you go about coaching leaders with this? Because it sounds like your experience is, is very unique and idiosyncratic to your upbringing, to your personal journey. And I think this is a, a really useful gem of insight that can be really powerful if scaled across multiple leaders, but these leaders, not all of them would have had the same exposure that you would have. So how do you work with leaders to build this kind of cross-cultural adaptation while staying authentic? I think a couple of things, right, is number one is you need to understand who you are as an individual. And what I mean by that is there's certain things that you gravitate to. There's certain things you like. There's certain things you're good at. And then there's some things you're not. And if you understand that, it will help you because you won't try to be something you're not. But that being said, I also think it's very important to understand that you see the world a certain way. And when we're in a team, it's six people who see the world a different way. And the skill of the leader now is to try to draw all of those ways of viewing this problem, but try to identify criteria to pick a solution that works for the company. And if you're thinking in a win-loss way, I'm here competing because I want my idea to win, then that's where things fall apart. One of the greatest leaders I ever worked for he had a process that I used to this day, and it was, here's an issue. What are the options we have? And let's debate them. And we would just, each of us would give our view, talk about the merits of our perspective, 
And then when we felt that was fully tested, we looked at him and said, you've heard everything, but what are we doing? And he said, we're going laugh. And we all went laugh happily because everyone was heard. Everyone's perspective was considered, but there was also respect to the fact that he had earned the right to make the call. And therefore, I had contributed. My issue was considered. The decision was made by the appropriate person. I think that's so healthy for organizations. Many times when things fall apart, it's because someone said, they didn't pick my idea. Why should he? Why shouldn't he have picked the idea that he felt comfortable or she felt comfortable making, having only right to make that call? And so even within the context of egalitarian, team-oriented, there has to be the context of an ultimate decision maker and the best optimal decision for the situation. So I think as a leader, you have to know who you are. You have to know what you're good at. You also have to be humble. I think people on any team I've led have known, and, and it's very clear that Chad knows what he's not good at, and he finds people that are better than him. And he makes them aware of that. And he says, this is what I'm trying to do. I think this would work. I don't have it all, but this is my vision. And allow others to actually make it dramatically better than you envision. So they'd be like, child, what you tried to do, it's not going to work, but we can do X to Y. And I'm like, sure, I'm good with that. Or can't do it. And for these reasons, I think leaders create that context. Now, Culturally, leaders have to be curious. And I, I, I remember an example where I was trying to, in the age of diversity, empower a female direct report of mine in, in Malaysia to do something that was culturally very difficult for her. It was a challenge, hierarchical, older gentleman in a context that would not be accepted. And I could visibly see her anxiety. And I didn't understand it. Until one day it clicked and I realized I was damaging her because I was constantly putting her in a situation that was detrimental to her. I catched it. I said, hey, let's flip roles. I'll be the bad cop. You'll be the good cop. And you could just see the relief on her face as she was taken out of a situation that was very emotionally challenging to her. It was my curiosity with culture. That helped me to pick that up. Names, how to pronounce them properly. What are the common things that we, we need to have among ourselves? Those were the kind of things that helped me be better culturally. Every leader doesn't have that, but it's something I, I highly encourage. Be curious, be humble, be aware of your biases as well, because they do exist. And if you can be aware of these things, you have a higher likelihood of being really engaging and commit, getting commitment from your team. I really love that so much, Chad, because this idea of being authentic to yourself, but at the same time, understanding your own strengths, your own weaknesses, how you can complement them with the people around you. In fact, I was just thinking through that lead framework that you talked about, that idea of leveraging the diversity within the team, the partnerships that you have, at the same time, also being very conscious about equipping people to be more of who they are and aligning everybody ultimately to a single objective, a single goal, and 
that leads to being able to deliver results. And this, this thread seemed common pretty much across all of the examples that you're giving. And I would almost argue that this isn't just a leadership framework. This is almost a framework for how to operate well in team. And is there anything left that you have to add to this framework before we wrap up? I think a couple of things I think are on the leveraging the team. I think you just hit the nail on the head. We're in a global world where companies are depending on all global countries and, and for revenue and having valuing the insights and folks are who may not, you may not be aware of how much insight they have. You look at companies today that have full paths on certain ads or commercials that could have been avoided if they had just simply even said, Hey, let me run this by this group of my internal constituents that reflect that customer group that I'm asking, or do I have someone who is globally enabled to understand these issues or would have helped dramatically. So that leveraging a team is saying, look, if I have a leadership team and everyone looks like me or and even if they look different, but we all went to Harvard or some other Ivy League school or whatever it is that's common, we still have to think we need that diversity of thought. So that is, I agree with you, that is critical for companies today to value diversity, not in a superficial external look at us, we look, but really understand how to harness the power of that local knowledge to innovate and to design our technologies. I lived in Indonesia and I, I looked at that Gojek kind of environment and hopping on a motorcycle through the match it traffic. And, but again, you just see so much creative because people who come from poverty have such innovative ways of surviving and seeing problems as opportunities. And you need to have a team that's comprised of people that have had some of those experiences. I think the other thing that, that comes to mind is as leaders, you need to have a methodology to understand that. How do you know you're seeing the best talent? If it's always, how do you get down below your leadership team to really understand some talent that may not be obvious to you? And I think the third thing you need to have as a leader is that people can learn. Because you, you came from an Ivy League school, you came from any university, you have a capacity to learn. And I think so many times what frustrates me is I've seen the anomalies being supported when the company wants to develop certain people, but then those same anomalies are used as, as limits. So X doesn't have it, but it's okay because I want to give it to X. Y doesn't have it, but I can't give them the opportunity because they don't have it. But here's X and X is successful, but why can't Y be given that same opportunity? And that's where companies lose a lot of credibility because in that scenario, they're picking winners and losers versus having a competitive process that allows people to compete. But I was, that would be the last thing. I think so much of our systems today that identify talent don't do it on the basis of competition. And I believe in a model that within companies, we should be competing. 
And it's not a destructive competition, but it's a competitive nature of saying, let people compete. No diverse candidate wants to get a job because they're diverse. They just want an opportunity to compete and get a shot to show what they can do. And so companies need to make sure that their evaluation processes allow for competition. Three of these folks have this job. Johnny moved it further than the other two. Johnny should win. He had the same district, the same area. How do we create more competition? I think if people compete and lose, they're a lot better for it than just knowing that X or Y doesn't have to compete. They're just, they know who to know and, and that's the basis of their success. I love that. And thank you so much for hanging with us today, Chad, and sharing all of your insights. I think I've personally taken away a lot from this episode. Uh, and for those of you who are listening, I hope you enjoyed the show and have taken the lead framework to heart as well. Make sure that you head on over to www.engagerocket.co slash hrimpact to get this show notes and all the other show notes and content that we have from other top HR leaders to build elite teams and engaged organization. My name has been CT. Thank you so much for listening today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.